Welcome to this week's edition of the Riff Raff News and this week we'll be taking a look at Ukraine, what's happening on the northeastern border and also some of the thinking about supply of ammunition. Also going to take a quick look at what's happening with the Northern Ireland Protocol as it looks as though there's been rumblings in the background that there might be an agreement in the offing. So Sean, we've been talking quite a lot about um, Putin and Ukraine mm. over recent weeks um, but I think as we ne- nearer the spring, or we get nearer the spring, uh, I think it's just worth reflecting on what's happening there now. And you know, interesting stories coming out of um, what's known as the uh, the Sumy region, which is in the northeast yeah. of Ukraine, and to sort of roll back about a year, um, which is is essentially when it all started. Um, and back in February 22, uh, volunteers in that area armed themselves with petrol bombs. You might have seen quite a lot of that on the news mm, at the time. Mm, yeah. Uh, and others, um, they formed sort of uh, what they called territorial defences, mainly with with um, older vehicles. And and when um, the Russians invaded, they they used these sort of assets, these limited assets, to surround a column of. Uh, Russian armoured vehicles with effectively burning cars and I don't know how they did it but uh, they somehow dragged um, the Russians from their armoured vehicles and then commandeered them for themselves and and roll forward a year yeah it is, roll forward a year uh, and quite a lot of time in the workshop, a fresh lick of paint and new ammo these captured vehicles now form the backbone of a newly mechanised brigade ready to fight in the coming offensive. Goodness me. It's incredible, isn't it? That is. It's astonishing, isn't it? That these um, basically uh, uh, territorials, as you say, it's much the same as the territorial army over here, I guess. Yeah. Um, So they're very lightly armed and and trained, basically, at the end of the day. They're meant to be the last line of defence, aren't they, almost? And they're um, they're out there doing, you know, the the bravery of these guys to, to, you know... Can't I don't imagine know how you can face you, really. up to an armoured column with just Molotov cocktails and, and burning vehicles. Uh, but it's, it's incredible. But you know, we, we keep hearing about the um, the defence of Bakhmut. I think is mm. how it's how it's described. Yeah. And somehow the Ukrainians are hanging on. Um, yeah. And the Russians continue to send waves and waves of um, infantry into what they're now calling the meat grinder. Yeah, um, this is because so many of them about, are, Yeah, so many of them are losing their lives there. Is that the Russian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's it, it's horrible because you've got to remember they're young men. Yeah. I know they're, they're doing the wrong thing, but it's they're still young men, and yeah. they're losing something like two thousand uh, soldiers a day. Um, uh, but offensive have also begun north of Bakhmut, um, and. Uh, the same thing's happened again. Uh, a load of Russian soldiers have abandoned dozens of armoured vehicles mm-hmm. uh, uh, fleeing. And they, of course, are now back in the Ukrainians' hands. So <laughs> these <laughs> these stories emerging of, of, of bravery uh, and against all odds, but also somehow managing to um, facilitate their own resupply, mm. uh, which, is, which is quite... Uh, Astonishing, quite incredible. Yeah, um, but I guess ultimately the Ukrainians are fearing multiple assaults at different times um, from that sort of northeast down to the southeastern border. I know that's 
that's some of the generals are talking about this week is that whereas last time um, the invasion was concentrated on one particular area mm. uh, there is a real risk that um, Putin uh, may open up on several fronts remains to be seen yeah. um, going back to Sumi which again I mentioned is in the northeast uh, signs are ominous of the invasion there's 10,000 Russian troops amassed on the border mm. and um, a field hospital and that was it was the field hospitals last time that mm. convinced most of us watching that that this was this was going to happen, yeah. despite what the Russians were saying. Uh, so not a bluff. Um, and in addition, this time the Russians are laying gravel so that um, the the tanks and heavy vehicles don't get bogged down yeah. as they did last time, and effectively became sitting ducks. Um, it's estimated that half the troops are from the mobilisation we heard about not so long ago, uh, and this time fewer. No. Yeah, indeed, fewer t fewer tanks, but many more men. So um, that's interesting. So that would suggest um, infantry-led assault. Mm. Um, but the incredible thing is, and you must have seen this too, is that the the war is almost being fought in a first world war way. Yeah, uh, with trench warfare. Yeah, with limited gains, um, one way or another. But of course, massive, massive loss of life. Mm. Um, so, I think you know we've heard a lot about tanks. We talked about that last time. The Ukrainians are still Ukrainians are still waiting for the Western tanks. So yeah. There's a question there: is is it too little, too late? Just about everyone is expecting a massive Russian offensive and the difference this time is intelligent reports are picking up huge movements of aircraft and assault helicopters mm. and the thinking is that this time around the Russians may lead with an air assault although Russians are very worried about losing more pilots because mm. as we discussed in last week's pod there's no air supremacy um so that's that's the current thinking that this this wave of the the war if you like yeah. will be um uh, more aerial in nature i know i, I read um fairly recently that the 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 western nations the alliance i guess you'd call them are rushing in uh loads more of the uh, anti anti-aircraft you know the, the protection and that's exactly because of that i guess because they're concerned about a an aerial led offensive which um hasn't been the case up to now yeah i mean that's that was that was something else i was going to mention you're absolutely right um uh, because it, it it's a strange one the the, the russians have, have certainly got the aircraft um they've got well thousands of aircraft they could deploy yeah but they're short of pilots mm. um so so they'll they'll be they'll be i would imagine quite apprehensive if they know that on the ground the ukrainians have these mobile missile uh, systems but mm. but they do need to be rushed into ukraine if they haven't been already yeah um uh, so I know that the US, Germany and the Netherlands are looking to accelerate deliveries of Patriot missiles. Mm -hmm. um, and France and Italy <coughs> are supplying what they call Mamba rockets. 
Okay. Uh, and it's a, as, these are mobile systems that can shoot and move. Mm. Um, because the problem with these defence things is they become targets in themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's a bit like the, the HEMARS or HIMARS that the USA provided. But it's it looks like it's going to be a different phase of the war. That's that's what I'm picking up. Yeah. Uh, that that l- less uh, Soviet-era tanks and armoured vehicles, more infantry and increased aerial threat. Well, it was, it was Ben Wallace, wasn't it, who said the other day that he thinks they've got 95% of their army in, in the uh, uh, area of operation now, in the theatre of operation, I think they call it, don't they? 95% of, the, of the, the men that they've got in the... That's a, incredible, really, isn't it? That, that's an astonishing figure that um, they've left themselves open to that degree, that they're, they're using that percentage of their yeah. army on, on Ukraine. It, it would be, if it were true, it would be almost unbelievable, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, mm. Uh, I suppose that they could argue they can call up, uh, they can raise another draft. But, yeah. Uh, you, <laughs> without being facetious, you wonder how many young men <laughs> well, are left. Well, quite. <laughs> having all I mean, do, do you think this corners. is? Do you think this is his last throw of the dice? Do you think this is because I mean, if he puts this much into this particular operation, there's not going to be much left to carry to do anything else afterwards, is there? If if this failed, I think it's. I, you, you get the sense when when you look at those graphs you see in newspapers of of how many assets he's got, you get the sense that it. it it, it won't be the equipment that holds him back mm. and limits his, his his time of being able to do this. It'll be more the political uh, acceptance of more failure. Mm. Uh, so even Putin is somebody who could be living on borrowed time. That's the sense I get. Mm. Um, so we'll see. But the, the other thing which I thought was quite interesting, I don't know if you saw Stoltenberg... Uh, the NATO yeah. Secretary General, mm. uh, he's warned of, of of a logistics race for ammo and missile systems. Mm. In that, if you look at the NATO alliance, inventories of ammo and spare parts are running low because yeah. so much ordnance has been given over to Ukraine. And just just an example, Ukraine are firing about five thousand uh, shells, artillery shells a day. Uh, and you don't have to be a genius to work out that, that that's that that's a lot of shells and a no, lot of ordnance no. that needs to be replaced. It, it d- does make you think when you hear these things is how how you know the, the Second World how that worked when you think of the the amount of ammunition that must have been fired then. Mm. Um, well, and is, is it is it because is it because nations have slimmed down their um, their their arsenals? their inventory as they've sought to balance budgets is that why we're in this sort of just in time situation i think uh, so in, in supplying one country yeah i think there was a there, there was a belief that well that, that this sort of um warfare was inconceivable that the that countries just didn't think i mean they've they've been spending a lot of money haven't they on on anti-terrorist actions and actions in cyberspace and things that could come from 
uh, players that aren't necessarily formal nations. They didn't. I don't think they expected nation states in the 21st century to be fighting a, a 19th century, early 19th century battle in trenches across across Europe. The other thing I think is quite interesting. I mean, in the context of of the Second World War, this is one of the arguments they're making now in favour of Chamberlain, aren't they? That they all, that all of them have always talked about the Munich moment where he went to to speak to to Hitler and peace in our time when he got back into this and country. As well. yeah. yeah, there's an argument now that says that he knew exactly what was happening. That this negotiation effectively was to give Britain a year extra to produce munitions for the coming war that he knew was going uh, to happen and that was right. a ploy on his part there's a film out at the moment that sort of suggests that might have been the case that that he he knew what was what was going on so i think it's no surprise really that we we're unprepared aren't we in in the west we've got the i think we've got the production facilities there but as has been shown already i think western economies are going to have to take a big hit if we're serious about a long-term provision of munitions for Ukraine, um, if we're not going to get involved ourselves first-hand. I mean, you were talking, I think, last time about the issues with regard to Moldova at the moment. There's lots of political shenanigans going on down there, isn't there? Because mm. he's got mm. a fifth columnist in there, effectively, Putin. Oh, we did that, have a chat about that. Yeah, which... Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah, and there's also this, this... As we speak, there's a press conference going on with Mark Milley, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in, mm-hmm. in the States, who's suggesting that the only way that this can end is through negotiation, that neither the Ukrainians nor uh, the Russians can win this, that in some way they're going to have to facilitate a negotiation to bring the whole thing to a close. I mean, he's further gone on from that and said that even if they provide all the munitions that the Ukrainians ask for, it's very unlikely that they could win this within a year. So he's, there's almost contradictory messages there. But I think it's interesting that that sort of diverges from the political statements that have been made by people like Sunak and uh, Biden and some of the other European leaders that Putin needs to be seen to be defeated. I think there's a there's a pragmatism there that's coming to bear that maybe the political leaders aren't living with but we'll, we'll see how that sort of pans out. I think the, the, my view is that I generally don't think anyone really knows. No. <laughs> because this time last year we were saying that if he does go across the border, it'll all be over in three days. Mm. So I, I, don't, I don't think we, know, we really know. But, but, but the only thing I think we can be sure about is the assault is coming mm. and it looks like it's going to be uh, aerial and infantry Mm. And that does probably uh, just endorse the current strategy of logistical support, ammunition support and anti-aircraft missile support as opposed to fighter jets, mm. the conversation we had last time round. But, uh, if I can add one uh, more I thing think, in there, because yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it's quite interesting that he's um, due to give a speech to the joint Russian Duma on the 21st of February been it's been labeled as a huge speech i mean there's a lot of this play acting going on but one wonders whether that's in advance of actions that are meant to celebrate the the anniversary of 
the initial action. The special operation, mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I wanted to have a look, Guy, at the Northern Ireland Protocol. Do you remember that? Yeah, of course. Um, just to put this into some context, it looks as though there might be an agreement bubbling under. This is the uh, this is the problem that we've been having with formalising any sort of trading agreements with the EU, and it all it all comes out of um, the Good Friday Agreement. All the problems arise as a result of the Good Friday Agreement. You remember uh, uh, Tony Blair, Mo Molum, uh, yeah. Reverend Ian Paisley at that point, um, Martin McGuinness. Um, Jerry Adams, David Trimble, John Hume, Bertie Hearn, Uncle Tom Cobbley and all, they were all Bill around. Clinton as well was quite involved, wasn't he? Who was? Clinton was on, well, Clinton was a keen was observer, there, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he sent his guy over, I forget what his name was now, I've forgotten his... Oh God, you're going to get me going now. Yeah, yeah. There, was a, there was a congressman, wasn't there, I think? Yeah, we'll great, see if we can uh, come to him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Good Friday Agreement between the Republicans and the Unionists and the, and the non-aligned parties, that in itself was signed on the 10th of April, 98. Mm. And it was approved by referenda on either side of the border in Ireland on 22nd of May, 1998. And what's quite interesting and what I found quite interesting was that there's been talk about not being able to... Um, not being able to get the agreement with regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol over the line um, because of the fact that there was it would breach the Good Friday Agreement in terms of having a hard border on the island of Ireland. Hmm. So um, this was meant to be the context in which we're, we're having problems at the moment because the, um, the European Union and the British don't want to have a hard border to prevent trade to prevent trade and politically it also signals that the island isn't as a one in the sense that there aren't any cross-border agreements but if, if you look more closely it's been acknowledged that there is there is no formal restriction in the good friday agreement about having a border on the island of ireland this is all an unwritten um agreement whereby the messaging it would put across if if structures were to start appearing between the south and the north having taken down you remember you remember we we both lived through this didn't we the the euphemistically called the troubles where mm. um hundreds thousands of people died uh, as a result of the uh, the disturbances between the ira and and the unionist paramilitaries as well during the 60s and 70s and, and 80s and through to the 90s um, and you'll also recall that at the time the British set up what effectively were watchtowers on the border between the north and the south the border areas to avoid smuggling that was going on or they thought was going on in terms of munitions coming across the border that that those those border watchtowers and the idea of putting up any border um, structures are the things that both of the both the Europeans, the Irish government, and the British government were were trying to avoid. Um, so, post Brexit, once once we join, once we voted to leave 
the European Union, in terms of different trading arrangements, there had to be some way of the Europeans and for that matter the British if they wanted to, to monitor what was coming in and going out of the European Union or the United Kingdom. And as such, we had, do you remember um, Theresa May and the backstop? Oh, the backstop, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you remember what the, uh, the backstop was effectively, a, as the name suggests, it was, a, it was a, meant to be a temporary position until the European Union, the United Kingdom could agree something more permanent. The idea behind that was that, that um, Northern Ireland would stay within the European single market and Britain as a whole would continue to adhere to uh, European rules with regard to trade, agriculture, so that, that there wouldn't be any necessity to have any any borders. But you'll recall that um, that was kicked into touch effectively because she was reliant upon the DUP mm. to get any legislation through the House of Commons and they weren't having any of it. They decided that they didn't um, that they didn't agree with the idea that Northern Ireland would be treated any differently to the remainder of the United Kingdom. So that fell, and it also brought about the collapse of the Theresa May administration. Well, who can? I'm trying to remember the year. Was it 2019? Who it, can remember the endless votes? Yeah, yeah. Vote upon vote upon vote, and loss upon loss upon loss. Yeah. And the European yeah. Research Group, who were voting with them, who were voting with the DUP, yeah. and of course, I, I was going to say it wasn't just the DUP. No, <laughs> yeah. It, was, yeah. <laughs> it was it was people like our friend uh, Jacob, and, yeah. uh, and and Steve Baker. You remember, oh, old yeah. man Steve yeah. Baker, and, and Steve, yeah. yeah, and and some of the others who were who were heavily involved in that. And then you remember we had a, a clean break from from the Theresa May administration and we had an oven ready deal yes do you remember the oven ready deal from Mr oven Johnson oven ready deal yeah. yeah I do get Brexit done well the oven ready deal in terms of Northern Ireland which they were warned before Brexit that there would be these issues left us in the position that we are now which effectively we have a, a border in in the Irish Sea so that any goods going backwards or forwards between um, Britain and Ireland, specifically between Britain and Ireland, have to be checked at Irish ports before they can be distributed any within any parts of the island of Ireland. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine British companies such as, particularly supermarkets, Marks and Spencers, Tesco's, where before they just moved their goods seamlessly across the Irish Sea, Yep. Now all of their goods are held up at Irish ports while they're checked to make sure they adhere to And are they doing that to European the best of your regulations? Are they physically doing that or are they still I thought they were still waving them through. Well, they're meant to be they're meant to be physically doing it. Whether they're waving them through for convenience temporarily is one matter, but that's mm. Mm. that's not a long term solution. No. So so that's that's where we are at the moment. Now, what the what the British have been saying is that they want a system whereby, almost like when you come in through an airport, you have a yeah. declare and nothing to declare channel. Yeah. So, so goods that aren't um, that aren't going south of the border 
go straight through the nothing to declare channel yeah. and goods that are going south of the border or have the prospect of going south of the border um, actually go through the declare channel and have to fill in lots of extra paperwork and make sure they adhere to you. So in other words, you, you, you create that border, which doesn't exist. Mm. You create that uh, in effectively Northern Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. For, and that's the clearance to run through to uh, the Republic of Ireland. That's Is right. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So one, yeah. once once they're into Northern Ireland, any goods, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, 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 can, they can go to their respective It sounds simple, but then I, then, I think of, then I think of practicalities and I think about I'm running a courier business. Hmm. You know, I don't fill a wagon with just goods that are for Northern Ireland. I no. Fill a wagon for goods that are probably for both Northern Ireland and the Republic. Well, you couldn't do uh, that. So, that, yeah. so there isn't a sort of a uh, a mauve lane, is there? Where it would be <laughs> <both>. <laughs> mix and match. Oh, like you say, I don't know how you how you could do that because the yeah. the goods. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, I think the, the, from the British perspective, they wanted it done upon the basis of trusted traders, if you like. Mm. So traders would effectively say, would effectively make a declaration, and that would be it. They wouldn't. They wouldn't. Uh, but quite perhaps understandably, the EU was saying, "Well, you know, this. You know, we don't do this with anybody else. Why? Why should we do it with you?" And so we're in that position. So we, we've almost got, so I understand within this agreement that could be coming up, we've got this halfway house where where the European Union have compromised on these um, effective lanes, so the declare and nothing to declare okay. or, or red and green lanes. Yeah. The other major discussion or dispute with regard to this was the role of the ECJ, uh, the European Court of Justice, who were going to oversee any disputes with regard okay. to trade between the two separate entities. Um, the British made a big point, and Boris Johnson was a big um, proponent of this, the, that the ECJ were going to have nothing to do with this whatsoever, and that they were going to be cut out of any any um, jurisdiction over it. But it would appear that the, as part of this compromise deal, the British have, have agreed that the ECJ can be the ultimate arbiter, albeit that they appear to be talking down the role of the ECJ in that, but they are still within the picture. So okay. they will So that's their that's their our give up and the EU's give up is having the green and the red lane. Absolutely. Essentially. There, there's a win win. Seems fair enough. Yeah. What what is quite interesting, and you'll be aware of this being a, a trading man and what have you, that the if you look at the trading figures and the uh, GDP with regard to mainland Britain and Northern Ireland since Brexit, Northern Ireland, who are still trading within a single market effectively, are doing, within the European single market, are doing very nicely, thank you very much. Um, they're doing much better than mainland, mainland Britain if you, if you divide them off, which is quite interesting, isn't it, really? It's interesting, but really, sadly, not surprising. No, uh, no. because this uh, would be a great idea, wouldn't it? Have to this was this concept: free movement of trade, free movement of goods, 
Yeah, premium of goods. Uh, frictionless trade. Frictionless trade. Mm. Never catch on, will it? <laughs> so just to put the cap on this, the um, the only caution I would mm. put in place with regard to this is obviously they've got to sell this to the DUP. I was going to say, yeah. Who, who are still sort of very wary of anything that that is put in place that differs between the mainland and, and, and Northern Ireland because they see it as part of a slippery slope to a united Ireland. And also, interestingly, somebody trying to boost his career, um, uh, that they, they're suggesting that it might be the opportunity for an ex-prime minister to step in and throw, a, uh, throw something in the spokes to try and derail this agreement. Who do you think that might be? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm struggling with that one. Sean, but um, it's maybe a guy with slightly unkempt hair. It's De Feffel. He's back on the scene. <laughs> is, yeah, is he really? <laughs> so mm. it might be that he he steps in, but we shall see. That's meant to be happening in the next week, so uh, something to look forward to. So, Sean, uh, in case you missed it, I'd like to start by talking about the super sewer. Mm. Yeah, super, super sewer. sewer. Yeah, uh, so. Last week, and indeed probably every week during the summer, there's lots in the news about foul waste polluting our rivers and the sea. Yeah, well, for the last few years, there's been an incredible success story, uh, and it's important to talk about successes yeah. in London. Uh, and this is a project known as the Tideway Tunnel, but it's better known as the Super Sewer. Super Sewer, I like that. Yeah, and it's apparently the largest, deepest sewer of its type, and it's all beneath the feet of Londoners, largely unnoticed right Crikey. now. goodness. As I said, it's an incredible success story, and it's almost a second River Thames, if that makes sense. Yeah. And work, work began six years ago uh, with an access shaft, um, and it goes beyond the depth of tube tunnels, for example, mm -hmm. and it's there to take the load off uh, the excellent but creaking Victorian sewer system created by Sir Joseph Baselgetti. Oh, yes, yeah. 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 Okay, you may have heard of him. I've got an interesting fact on that, actually. Oh, go on. He's, he's, um, he's uh, probably his grandson now, is the guy who runs Baselget TV Productions. You know, the, uh, they make, or they used to make um, Big Brother, I think you'll find. Anyway, I digress. Carry on. Well, you, you jumped me there. That's... Uh, <laughs> So, well, uh, incredible. But the system, the trouble is the system overflows frequently. Mm. Um, as London is obviously three times bigger now uh, and with more concrete, as previously it would have been grassland and would be able to, you know, um, non-foul water would be able to seep away quite naturally. Yeah. And nowadays all you need is two millimetres of rain and it can't cope. Correct. And so you get sewage spills into the Thames. Um, so, I know we like some facts and figures, Sean. So, mm. the new tunnel is 7.2 metres wide and taller than a red London bus. 7.2 metres, that's huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. As I said, it's second river attempts. When it opens in 2025, uh, it will... will take excess rain and sewage to pumping stations. And it's designed not only to do that, but also to slow the flow uh, and take it to the sewage treatment works uh, the oh. general flow is west sort of chiswick hammersmith 
area to east, mm. a place called Abbey Mills, with an incredible, incredibly precise gradient of one in eight hundred. So that's how it that's how it act, it yeah. works on the basis of, of yeah. um, one in eight hundred. Goodness, yeah. can you imagine the precision needed? Yeah, to actually produce and manufacture and install that. Crikey. It's twenty five kilometres long, seventy metres deep at its deepest point, and is being delivered in three sections. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed Riff Raff News. Please leave some comments on the app or on our Facebook page. And uh, please subscribe and then episodes will drop automatically into your podcast feed.